Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good. It's fantastic. Hey, have you ever found yourself in the middle of a downward mental spiral? What I mean is like you have an experience, you have an idea, and that idea sort of gets stuck, and it sort of grows, and it sort of capitulates, and expands, and all of a sudden, maybe you wind up more anxious, or more angry, or more upset, than really the situation probably merits. It just sort of expands uncontrollably. I've had some of these. It happens sometimes. Uh, you know, in my own life, there was a time... Um, few weeks back, I got out, it was a Saturday morning, I was getting ready to mow my yard, and, and somebody sent me a message from church. It wasn't a kind message, necessarily. And so it, it got stuck in my head, and I thought, ah, oh, what a crummy thing. And I started to mow, and I started to think about that message a little bit, and it, it evolved from just, ah, oh, what a crummy thing, to, you know, that's kind of a self-righteous thing to think. Uh, what a kind of a, an arrogant personality that person must have. And I, I started to mow, and I started to think on this idea a little bit more, and it started to spiral and grow, and we went from what's, what, a, what a kind of an arrogant way of thinking to, I wonder if they're a narcissist. I mean, how, how can you really not think of other people? How can you be so self-absorbed and think that way or say something like that? And I started mowing more, and that idea got stuck. It takes me a long time to push mow my yard, by the way. I have plenty of time to meditate on this. And so as I'm sitting there, that idea gets stuck, and it swirls a little bit more, and I thought, you know what, I don't even know if they believe in Jesus. Like, how could you be a Christian and have that sort of mentality? And I must have looked like a crazy person, because I'm just huffing and puffing my mower across my yard as I'm getting more upset about this. And when I finally get done, I'm sitting down, and I get to cool off and think straight, and I realized, what a crazy journey this has been. We started with a message that was maybe a little unkind to, they're an apostate of the entire faith which is a, a completely unreasonable jump, but that's what happens when we get caught in that spiral sometimes. That negativity just expands and it grows beyond healthy boundaries. And maybe you've experienced something like that in your life. Maybe you, you had a conversation with somebody, they said something unkind or something that kind of hit you the wrong way, and, and you thought about it and spiraled, and pretty soon you're convinced that person hated you, even though they probably didn't. Or maybe you made a mistake at work, and maybe there was even some disciplinary action, and you were convinced after a little thinking and spiraling that maybe you should just quit and, and maybe just start a whole new career path because you made one mistake. Sometimes we get stuck in those spots and these ideas. They're like seeds that get planted in the ground, and they root, and they germinate, and they just spiral beyond reasonable bounds. It's not healthy. We need some healthy boundaries for those things. This kind of thing, it happens in our faith just as much as it happens in our emotional, relational work lives. Maybe you come up against something in life, there's, there's a question that arises, and you don't really know how to answer that question with your faith, and there's a tension that's born there. And maybe as you sit there and you think about it a little bit more, that tension, it grows into questions, and you start to wonder, oh, I don't really know if my faith really addresses this at all. And those questions, they grow, they become doubts, and you begin to think to yourself, I don't even know if my faith might be true because of these tensions and these questions. We may find ourselves in a full-blown crisis of faith all because of this one idea, this one tension, thought, question, doubt that gets planted and circulates and grows beyond healthy boundaries. Now, I want to be clear. Doubts are not bad things. Doubts actually are very healthy things. 
They are indicators that we are trying to engage with our lives and and our faith in a meaningful way. There's going to be tension. And these tensions, they're opportunities to grow. And and we're going to talk about that this morning in our message. But sometimes those doubts, we got to make sure that they live within healthy boundaries. We got to set up the fence posts, so to speak, so they don't capitulate and grow beyond what is healthy into destructive, all encompassing forces in our lives. That's what we're talking about today. And we're going to see that sort of conversation of doubt and healthy boundaries take place in the life of somebody named John the Baptist in the book of Matthew, chapter 11. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open those up to Matthew, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes, along with our passages pulled up, broken down, ready for you to engage with, take some notes on, get the most out of our time together. And I'll tell you what, fellas, can we bring the lights up just a little bit so people can see those Bibles? Uh, because in first service, we actually bring our Bibles. <laughs> Anyway, Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to be. So like we said, doubt is not a bad thing. It just has to live within some healthy boundaries. And sometimes learning where those boundaries are, it's, it's essential that we learn where our doubts come from. And we kind of mentioned it already, but it's important to reiterate. Doubt, not a bad thing, it's actually the result of, of a real faith intersecting with a real life in a real way. In other words, we're really trying to live out the things that we believe. And we see that play out, like we said, in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, with John the Baptist. So here's verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, just a refresher, in case we've forgotten, or maybe we're just not familiar, John the Baptist is somebody that we haven't seen for several chapters in the book of Matthew. We were introduced to him early on. He is Jesus' cousin. But more importantly, John had his own ministry before Jesus ever got started. He had a very simple message. He would travel throughout a certain region of Israel, and his message was basically, get ready. Because God is going to do something huge. He's going to send his chosen one that we've been waiting on for centuries that the prophets spoke about. That chosen one, the Messiah, he is going to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. And we all need to repent, turn away from our sins, and prepare ourselves for what God is going to do. And it was a pretty fruitful ministry. John had a lot of people that followed him. Probably most important to John's ministry was that he was a big believer that Jesus was this chosen one, that he was the Messiah. And that Jesus was going to be the one that brings God's kingdom into this world. In fact, John staked his reputation on preaching that very thing. Very publicly announced, behold, the Lamb of God who washes away the sin of the world. He believed Jesus was it. That's where we left John way back in the early days of Matthew. But now John's in a very different place. And he's sending people to ask Jesus, are you really the guy Or have we misplaced our faith? Should we be waiting on somebody else? And we might wonder what caused this change in these few short chapters. Well, if you look back at at verse 2, John is introduced not only as John, but at John who was in prison. So he's not walking around free preaching as he was earlier. And we don't know if John had a family or not. If he did, he is not anywhere near them at this point. He's in jail. So how did he wind up there? That's actually a very long story that we read about in Matthew chapter 14. 
The short of it, though, is this. The ruler of this region of Israel was a guy named Herod Antipas, oftentimes just known as Antipas. And he was married to a princess from a foreign land. But on a business trip to Rome, another woman caught his eye. But not just any woman. It was his sister-in-law from his half-brother. And that wasn't just any sister-in-law. It was a woman that also happened to be his niece. And so I'm a little fuzzy on the details of how all these marriages were dissolved. I know Herod Antipas sent his foreign princess wife back home, which ended up being a bad move because that started a war a few short years later. I'm not real sure how the niece-slash-sister-in-law thing dissolved, but eventually she became his niece-slash-sister-in-law-slash-wife. And if you're confused, join the club, right? Keeping up with the Herodians has way more twists and turns than keeping up with the Kardashians ever had. That family wishes they had this drama. All that to say, in the process of marrying his niece-slash-sister-in-law-slash-wife, Herod broke about a dozen Jewish religious laws. And John the Baptist noticed. And he did more than noticed. He drew attention to it. And he preached against it. And he called Herod Antipas to repentance, to make things right. And they didn't like it, so they put him in jail. That's how John wound up there. And that's not exactly how you imagine your life turning out. Especially when you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to stand on the word of God and call the leaders of God's people to accountability. You don't expect to wind up in prison. And spoiler alert, John's going to kind of lose his head over this whole situation, literally. This is a messy thing. No wonder he has some doubts. Because John had this nice, tidy faith, this nice, tidy expectation of who Jesus was supposed to be and how the kingdom was going to come into this world and what it was supposed to look like. And then compared to this nice, tiny, you know, put-together, tidy faith, here is the reality of his very messy life and world. And when those two things intersect, they seem very incongruent. And that tension is born. And it's a tension that you and I experience in our own lives because oftentimes we can tend to have that same uh, tendency to, to have this nice, tidy, put-together faith that spits in a box that's supposed to address all of life's complexities and all of its vast array. We got the answers right here. And when we have that idea and then it meets the messy reality of actually living in this place, some incongruency tends to be birthed. There's tension. And questions start to arise in our lives. Naturally, how could they not? I mean, maybe you hit a, a rough patch in life and there's this frustration within you because this isn't how things are supposed to play out because I do the right things and I follow God and there's a tension. Or maybe a disaster hits your nation or hits your neighborhood and you look around at the, rough, or the, the wreckage that's left over and you say, well, how could something like this happen if you know, we're trying to follow God and do the right thing? Or, or maybe you're just introduced to a whole new way of thinking with new ideas and concepts you've never considered before, and they kind of make some sense, but they also don't really square with what you believe, and there's some tension that's birthed there. Because when we have this nice, tidy faith that we're trying to live out, and it comes into contact with this very messy, complicated world that we live in, it's just not always going to square. Doubt is natural. But like we said, it's not a bad thing. Because what that means is that we're actually trying to live and engage in the world with this faith that we profess. If we have a nice, tidy, put-together faith that we put on a shelf that doesn't impact the way we live or relate to people or the way we view and understand the world around us, it is completely useless. 
It's a dead faith, James calls it, because it has no working in our lives. It's about as useful as a souvenir from a truck stop souvenir stand. It has little value, if any. But when we have a faith that's engaging with life, well, that's meaningful. That means we're actually trying to be faithful, even if it doesn't always square and questions arise. That's a good thing. You know, we, we have a time in life or a time in human history when, when people believe that the earth was flat and that the sun, it wasn't this burning ball of, of gases millions of miles away that we rotated around. They believed it was a God that moved across the sky every day. And when he went down past the horizon, he visited the underworld. And it was a totally different way of looking at cosmology. But that was the belief of almost everybody in existence many, many years ago. And then one day, somebody noticed something. They saw a ship on the horizon. And instead of just like appearing all at once, very small and getting bigger, it sort of like started at the top and then slowly revealed itself more and more, almost like it was coming up over a hill. But oceans don't have hills. So what's the deal? Why did this happen? And their nice, tidy belief system was challenged by an observation of just living in a very messy world. And there was a tension that was birthed. And that tension gave rise to questions and doubts. And those doubts and questions gave rise to exploration. And it brought them to a place of fuller and truer understanding about the world that they live in. And that same thing happens in our faith as well. We like these very nice, tidy boxes that are all put together and buttoned up and answer all the questions. But the reality is our boxes are often far too small to accommodate for either God or the world we live in. And sometimes we need challenged. We need that tension in our lives because that pursuit of the answer, it's what leads to growth and understanding and a fuller, richer understanding of both God and the world we live in. There's a, a writer, his name's Frederick Buchner. He wrote a book, it was called Wishful Thinking, a Theological ABC. And in there, he has a quote, I think it very much applies to this situation. He says, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. And here's the part I love. Doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving, right? I love that because a faith that is stagnant, a faith that doesn't question, a faith that, that doesn't have doubts, like he said, is either asleep or it's a joke. We're inquisitive people. God put us together with, with rational minds that look at the world around us and ask questions. And it's through the exploration of those questions of our doubts that we grow and that we come into fuller understanding and fuller worship of him and his truth. Doubt is not a bad thing. It's simply the result of a very real faith interacting with a very real world in a very real way. So long as we have those healthy boundaries, doubt is something we can welcome. And that's where John the Baptist starts. But as we continue in his story, what we discover is that his doubts begin to trend in sort of an unhealthy direction. And they begin to even overshadow the certainties of his life. And that's not healthy. An unhealthy doubt is that which we allow to overshadow or overtake the certainties that we hold on to. And we're going to define what that word certainties means in just a little bit. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's look at John and see what this looks like in action. So here's chapter 11, starting in verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John 
what you hear and see. So remember, John is in prison. These are his, his followers that have gone and asked Jesus this question. So go back and tell John what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus hears this question, and he answers it just by sort of recounting all of the things that we've seen him do over the past several chapters in the book of Matthew. If you want to go back, you can start back in Matthew chapter 8 and read, and you've seen most of these miracles take place. We've seen uh, a man with leprosy cleansed. We, we've seen uh, a, a lame man given the ability to walk. We've seen a blind man given the ability to see. We, we've seen a little girl who was dead resuscitated back to life. We've seen him preach the message of the kingdom to the poor and the brokenhearted and the downtrodden. Jesus has fulfilled all of these things. And here's the, the even more amazing part. In the book of Isaiah, he prophesies about the Messiah in chapter 35, and, and the Messiah will do these sorts of things. In fact, Jesus is sort of giving a little paraphrase of what Isaiah says. And this is Jesus' way of saying, John, look at all the things I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the word of God. I'm most certainly in doing what he expects his Messiah to do. But here's the thing. John already knew all of this. If we were go back to verse 2, we would read, John had heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He already knew Jesus was performing miracles. He already knew he was giving uh, sight to the blind, that the lame were walking, that the dead were being raised. He knew all of this. People had come and told him. These are eyewitness accounts. And he doesn't question those. He's confident this is really happening. These are certainties in his life. And yet... That doubt he has, because of his own life circumstances, is allowed to grow, to capitulate, to spiral, and even to overshadow all of those other certainties that he has in his life. And sometimes we can see that same thing kind of happen in our lives. When doubt is allowed to grow beyond healthy boundaries, to sort of overtake even certainties. And we'll go beyond that. Even things that we say are probably most likely true. When it's given an undue amount of preference and priority, that's not healthy. And we know it's not healthy because we, we see the, 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 the difficulties and the challenges of that, the deficiencies of it, in almost every other context. If you talk about a relationship, for instance. Let's say you're in a relationship with somebody. Either you're married to them or you're dating them, whatever the case may be. And they forget your anniversary, right? That's going to be a sort of tension. It's going to introduce a question. Well, do they really care? Do they really love me? Are their affections true? It's not unreasonable, I guess. But let's say you've got that on the one hand. But then on the other hand, you've got all of these evidences that they do actually care about you. And they do love you. You know, they tell you verbally almost every day, I care about you so much. And, and they buy you thoughtful gifts, Right? Like flowers or a new fishing rod. It's very thoughtful. Hint, hint. Anyway, like, so that they have these signs. Or maybe they watch your favorite movie even though you know they hate it. They just sit there, they watch the whole thing, right? Or, or maybe they would rather use their weekend to do something fun, maybe go shopping, maybe work in the garden and flower bed, maybe go golfing, fishing, whatever. But instead... They say, you know what, we got to do this thing. We got to go help your parents do this repair on their house. We got to go help your sister or your brother with this thing that they got going on in their family. They give of their time to go help your family and loved ones. Why would they do that unless they loved you, right? 
You've got all these evidences that seem to testify in all likelihood they do, in fact, care about you. And that should be convincing. But if we were to look at this one incident, they forgot the anniversary. And I know they do all these other things, but almost certainly they do not care or love me. That would be unreasonable, wouldn't it? Like anybody who actually, like if you think that's reasonable, God help the person that you're with because they must have the patience of a saint, right? Because we have all of these certainties in life that their affections are true. Yes, we have tension, but that shouldn't overshadow everything else that we're so confident in. That's not healthy. But sometimes we allow that to happen in our faith. We have a tension, we have a question, and sometimes it receives this unhealthy priority over everything else that we have absolute confidence in. And we do have certainties in the Christian faith. And if you don't want to use the word certainty, we can use the word probably, absolutely, most likelies. It's just easier to say certainties. There absolutely, certainly was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived in first century Palestine. People have tried to disprove the existence of Jesus, and they have failed miserably because there's too much evidence, both biblically and extra-biblically. That word just means simply uh, sources and testimonies outside of the New Testament. It's not a question. Jesus walked the earth, and Jesus preached a certain message about the coming kingdom of God. That, too, is really beyond reproach or question. There's too much biblical and extra-biblical evidence. And this Jesus, he was crucified under the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate because of this message. That, too, is testified biblically and extra-biblically. It certainly happened. And the oldest traditions in the Christian faith, going back maybe as early as the year 15 AD, I'm sorry, not 15 AD, 45 AD, let's get our timeline straight, which is incredibly early, would seem to indicate that Jesus, after he was crucified, was taken and buried in a tomb. Otherwise, I don't know why that tradition exists in the earliest books of the New Testament unless it actually happened. In all likelihood, he was buried in a tomb. And despite being dead and despite being buried in a tomb, we have these disciples who make this claim that the tomb was emptied on the third day, that Jesus was not only raised from the dead, but they had multiple interactions with the risen Jesus. Now, we can call that into question. We can say that's a hard pill to swallow. We can say, I might even doubt that. But the thing is, they absolutely believed it. Because every last one of them would go preach this message till the day they died, and those deaths were hastened by this message, and they ended up losing their lives, almost every single one of them, as martyrs for this faith. You don't die for a lie, folks. Something happened on that day that fundamentally changed them and convinced every last one of them that Jesus was raised. And we don't have time to go into that whole conversation, but all the evidence weighed, probably, most likely, what happened was exactly what they said happened. Jesus was raised. These are certainties. And almost certainly is absolutely most likely is that we can hold on to in the Christian faith. They don't change. And my life, it may hit a rough patch. And those tensions may be introduced. I may get a call from the doctor, and it's not so good news. And I might call into question God's kindness the same way that Job did back in the Old Testament. It's not unreasonable. Or, or you know, I may lose my job. And I may call into question God's provision 
or the way that God provides and the way he sustains us. It wouldn't be an unreasonable doubt and tension to experience in that circumstance. Something might happen to my kids. I might question God's goodness. I think we all could understand if something like that happened, how somebody would have that tension in their life. But here's the thing. None of this tension, none of these questions, none of these doubts change the fact that there was a man named Jesus that walked through Israel, that preached this message, that died on a cross, that was buried in a tomb, and that given all the evidence, the best, most likely circumstances, that he actually was raised from the dead. Unbelievable as that sounds. Those doubts don't undo this. But to give them priority and allow them to overshadow the certainties that change everything that our faith is built on, that's not healthy. We have to have limits, healthy boundaries for our doubts and our questions to exist in. There has to be a balance that we find with our our doubts in one hand and our certainties in the other. And probably the question that we have to wrestle with and that we're asking ourselves this morning, how do we find that balance? What, What does that look like? And Jesus actually, maybe he intended to, maybe he didn't, I don't know, but he gives us some pretty good advice if we want to look back at verse six. He's speaking to John the Baptist And he says to them, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And that's kind of an odd phrase. How could somebody stumble over Jesus? How could his his life and his actions, all the things that he's doing, be sort of that thing they get hung up on? Because he's doing exactly what God called him to do. And he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. So if somebody is stumbling over the life and the ministry of Jesus, maybe the problem isn't him. Maybe it's the expectations that they approach him with. That's sort of what he's trying to preach to John here. And there's something interesting. This is a statement that kind of needs a response. And yet we don't ever read what John says. I mean, the next thing we hear about John, he's been beheaded. We never hear what he does. And this is something that the book of Matthew does kind of frequently with Jesus' words. He'll make these statements that sort of invite people to respond, and then we never read how they actually respond. In chapter 8, we read two of them back to back. The guy says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says something kind of puzzling. He says, foxes have holes and and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Sort of a way of saying, well, you can follow me, but you're not going to have a whole lot materially to show for it. And it sort of invites this response. If you really want to follow me, this is what it looks like. But we never read how that guy responds. All we get is in the very next verse is another one of these scenarios. Somebody says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And it's sort of this statement that says, okay, you can do that, but I need you to prioritize me over the cultural uh, implications or the cultural norms that you're used to. Are you going to follow me? We never know what happens to that guy. He never responds. Just like John the Baptist never responds. And here's the most amazing thing. Matthew really doesn't care how any of those people responded. Because Matthew's not writing to them. He's writing to you and I. And he wants to know how you and I will respond to Jesus. Will we assume that Jesus is supposed to fit in this nice little box, that our faith is supposed to be this tidy, put-together package, and then stumble over the tensions that inevitably follow, or will we simply seek to follow and understand him for who he is and what he actually came to do? And that's actually the key to finding this balance between our doubts 
and our certainties. It's the person of Jesus, knowing who he is and what he came to do and holding on to that passionately, tightly, fervently, and faithfully. And I think one of the best illustrations I can give you of what this looks like actually comes from my own life and wrestling with my own doubts. So, like many of us, I was raised in the church. I was taught, you know, the Bible is the Word of God, which it absolutely is. And I was taught that because it's the Word of God, when we look at the creation stories in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they are almost eyewitness testimonies. That all the details are exactly how it happened. That God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. That all life forms on earth showed up, boom, 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 just automatically. Done deal. And you know what? That may be how it happened. I'm fine with that. God can do what he wants. I was trained in this view in Bible college. I had a class, a whole semester-long class dedicated to why that interpretation is correct and the scientific evidences for it. And I'm well familiar with all that. But there is a tension in my life because I love science. I love the inquiry. And when I read all of the science and I look at all the evidence, there is a lot of paleontological evidence in the fossil record. More impressively and more recently, a whole lot of genetic evidence in the genome that there is a lot of shared material, a lot of common ancestry between us and other species alive. And it's kind of interesting. You build a tree of life model with the fossil record and you build a tree of life independent with the genetic record and they're almost identical. And it would seem to suggest that maybe we evolved from creatures one after the other over billions of years. And understandably, there's a tension in my life at that point because I have this nice, neat, tidy package that's supposed to explain everything and all the complexities of life, and then I have this experience of a very messy life that sometimes doesn't make sense. What, what do I do with that? And millions of people have asked that same question and wrestled with that same tension. And some of them, this is the thing they stumble over. They walk away from the faith entirely. And you know what? Sometimes Christians have encouraged that. There's an organization, Answers in Genesis. They do a lot of great work. There's a guy named Ken Ham that founded it. He, we owe a lot to him. But he's made a statement that, that goes something like this. As Genesis goes, so goes the Bible. As if if the first two chapters of Genesis aren't literal eyewitnesses accounts, everything in the Christian faith is undone, which is just such a small faith, really. Because our faith isn't built on the first two chapters of Genesis. It's built on the fact that there really was a man named Jesus that walked the earth in the first century Palestine, that he really did preach this message and was crucified that he was buried in a tomb and that all his disciples' lives were turned upside down and claimed the reason was because he's alive. The existence of the Christian church in general seems to testify that something amazing, miraculous, and unheard of happened on that day. And given all the evidence, it seems to indicate that tradition is the best explanation. Jesus is raised. That's what our faith is built on. At least that's what my faith is built on. And no matter what questions or tensions we may have over here, nothing overshadows that reality. That's my certainty. And it's interesting, when I embrace that, it kind of liberated me a little bit to start asking tough questions and to start reading books you're not supposed to read. And I learned a whole lot. It ended up being one of the most worshipful experiences of my life to date. Turns out there's a very rich and storied tradition, both Jewish and Christian, of interpreting those creation stories. And most of them do not take those stories as literally as you and I might assume. 
In other words, our ancestors didn't feel the need to read these as eyewitness testimonies. Learn something else. There's a whole lot of other creation stories. A lot of them from Babylon, from uh, Hatai, from the Assyrian Empire, early Assyrian Empire. Almost all of them older than Moses and even older than Abraham. And all of these stories, they, they have such familiar characters and instances like man being created from the ground or a garden in which the gods create and a tree of life somewhere in that garden and a serpent in that garden and some pretty familiar beats that we might recognize from Genesis. All of these older, which would seem to indicate Genesis kind of borrows from these stories. And sometimes people hear that and they say, oh, I, I don't know about that. But here's the thing, the beautiful thing about Genesis, it doesn't borrow because it's uninspired or because it's unoriginal, far from it. It borrows from these stories almost to poke fun at them. Believe it or not, the Bible's funny. And it doesn't just poke fun at those stories. It pokes fun at the gods that those stories tell about. Turns out the creation stories give one of the most wonderful explanations as to why the God of Israel is so unique and why all of the other gods that his people in the ancient world were tempted to worship were so anemic and inadequate and why he and he alone was worthy of their praise and worship. It's a phenomenal book that still has so much relevance in our lives today. That's why I say it's one of the most worshipful experiences of my life. And it all started because of doubt. Doubt that gave rise to questions, but was held within healthy boundaries because at the end of the day, our faith is built on Jesus and what happened on that day on the cross and three days later in that tomb. Our faith is built on a salvation that comes through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And when we hold that certainty in one hand, we can hold our doubts in the other hand. We don't need to be afraid of that. Because those questions, those tensions, they might bring us to a fuller and truer understanding of God, of his word, of the world around us. They might bring us into a greater faithfulness and be the greatest gift we've ever received. It all depends on if we keep them and those healthy boundaries. So, what are your questions? And what are your doubts? We all have them. We all got ants in our pants, remember? They keep our faith alive and moving. I hope you've got those questions and doubts. And I hope we keep them in healthy boundaries. Holding on firmly to what we know with certainty about Jesus and the foundations of our faith. And holding our questions and our tensions in the other hand. Not being afraid to explore them. Because to wave our doubts away is not necessarily a faithful response. But to allow them to grow, to get that spiral of downward emotion, to allow our tensions and our questions to become doubt, to become crises of faith because we've given them special priority to the fact they overshadow even the gospel, that's equally unfaithful. In fact, that's volitional unfaithfulness. We're choosing to ignore that which is true because it satisfies a sinful part of our heart that at the end of the day really doesn't want God to be in charge. But there is a balance and we maintain that balance by drawing closer to Jesus, building this faith on that firm foundation and holding on to that gospel with everything we've got because it is a gospel worth pouring our whole existence into and a gospel worth exploring to its fullest. So I would encourage you, if you have questions and doubts, don't sit on them. We have lots of resources. 
that you can utilize to gain that fuller explanation. We have Right Now Media Digital Library, which is chock full of wonderful Bible studies, some of them studies of books of the Bible, some of them topics. They do a great job of answering a lot of these questions. If you need more in-depth resources, I will happily provide books. Uh, there's sometimes short videos from uh, an organization that I find it does a wonderful job of addressing a lot of these difficult issues. And you just ask me. I love questions. I may not have the answer, but I love questions. I'd welcome you to ask that anytime. Just don't allow these opportunities for growth to spoil or even to fester and to become seeds of doubt that grow unchecked. Our God is worth more than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and for the opportunity just to acknowledge that our expectations of you oftentimes are inadequate. You don't fit in a box. Your word is rich and it is deep. And we could spend our entire lives plumbing the depths of its message and its wonder and still come up lacking. And so I pray that we never be satisfied with the neat, tidy package and that we never give in to the temptation to just sit and rest on this presumed understanding. But that you would use our tensions and our questions and our doubt to stretch us and to grow us and to bring us into a fuller understanding of you and your word and the world around us that you might be praised, that we might see the wonder of Jesus and his significance more and more clearly. You use all things for the good of those who love you, including our doubts. So let us build our foundation on Jesus. Let us take, us, let us take our doubts to him. Let us lay them at the cross and dedicate them and worship to him. Because in him, we live and move and have our being. In him, all things hold together, and that includes our lives. So let us find that balance Let's worship him. Let us grow as a result. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.